Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very, very interesting guest. I think that we're gonna be learning a lot about building and scaling. I mean, right now he's in a rocket ship and uh, is now, you know, like uh, one of his uh, multiple companies, but this latest baby is definitely, you know, like going in the right direction. And uh, we're gonna be learning about the ups, the downs, fights with co-founders, catastrophic financing rounds, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, John Kim. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So originally born and raised in Korea. So tell us about the upbringings. Yeah, I was born and raised in Korea and uh, I had a fortune of being living in the States uh, uh, for three years when I was a kid. So I think that's kind of where I put my uh, English a little bit. But, you know, since then I went back to Korea studied double E, then switched over to computer science. And um, yeah, right around that time, I also did a little bit of professional gaming in the background. So had a, you know, kind of a stereotypical background as an engineer, a little bit of a geek, loving to spend time on games and then kind of trying to figure out what to do with your life. I guess that's pretty much sums up my... John, I mean, yeah. you're, for, you're forgetting to tell everyone that is listening that you got into computers at five. I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess... Most people who grew around the 80s, early, maybe like mid 80s, probably got their first dose of computers through, through like Apple, a little bit of like IBM, you know, A8, you know, microprocessors and all that. So uh, uh, one of my uncle was really into computers. So I think I actually got my first dose of computer when I was three, loved playing games back then. And then I think I started getting to like programming literally around like the age of five, like the, with the basics and whatnot. So um, that's a pretty exciting time. That's impressive. What about getting seriously into gaming? I mean, how was that? Yeah, this is a kind of an embarrassing story, but uh, yeah, right around like middle school, I started to get into this online gaming using dial-up modems, paying hundreds of dollars for just for phone bills on a monthly basis. And, uh, you know, started playing a lot of first-person shooter games, the Wolfensteins, the Dooms, Duke Nukem 3D, Quakes and whatnot, and uh, started playing a little bit competitively. And right around when I was in the late teens, I got a call from Samsung. They're putting together their first ever professional gaming team. And then, uh, yeah, I was invited to play those games. But even back then, I didn't. I don't think I had really had a professional mindset. I just loved playing games. Uh, and thankfully, I was good at the first-person shooter. So uh, ultimately, you know, I ended up winning a lot of tournaments. I was an undefeated champion in Unreal Tournament in Korea and the world's number three back in, like, 2000. 
there was a thing called WCGC, which was like the first major like professional gaming event. It was also hosted by Samsung globally. So um, uh, I won some of those tournaments back then. And it's very interesting how it works there in Korea because you know you there's always an out there for the military. I mean, it's not like in in Israel. You know, like many of the families that we have in Israel that they just have to go, you know, and do the the army and all of that stuff for some time. But in Korea, there's a way out, and that way out is working at a tech company. So tell us about choosing this route. I think I played too much game during the first like two years of university. So you know, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And uh, I think when I went, won the competition, the world competition. I'm like, I really didn't see myself doing more of that for the rest of my life. So I wanted to kind of figure out and put a pause. And a way to do that was basically go to the military. But as a software or any kind of engineer, you can kind of like take a test and get a certificate from the government or a license to work at a tech company instead that they approve. And a lot of uh, Korean companies that got approval was like in software, IT, web, and gaming. So I ended up working for a gaming company called NCSoft. Uh, in exchange or uh, substitute for the military program for about a couple of years. And that's where I really got to understand about building a product that people love, getting the feedback, customer discovery, and also like how to tie that to a kind of a scalable impact. And then really learning about this concept of entrepreneurship. So I think that's where I did a lot of my soul searching. And then ultimately after coming or finishing that program, came back. And then uh, as soon as I graduated, I started my first company, I believe when I was like, 26. Yeah, because obviously you got that out of finishing your computer computer science degree. But, you know, tell us about what was that process of incubating Paprika Labs, which was like the, the first company. And, and what was that process to really bring it to life? Actually, I just wanted to build something that people wanted to use. So um, we kicked off this Web 2.0 company. And back then, Web 2.0 was a big thing. And I actually don't know what version we're on in, anymore. Uh, but we were just like spinning out new web services on a weekly basis. But even back then, I wanted to build something that was had a global impact. So all the web services we created were in, in English and targeting kind of the global user base. And we had like this bunch of users coming from Brazil and whatnot. But uh, ultimately, because we were on like what's at the end of 20, um, 2007, if you recall, like 2008 with this financial crisis, like no investor wanted to invest in Web 2.0 anymore, especially back then I was in Korea. So none of the Korean VCs wanted to invest in web component companies who didn't have any revenue, only had users. So, uh, but because of my background in um, software engineer, also having worked for a gaming company, then having been a professional gamer or actually investor came back to me and counter proposed that if we create games, they will invest. So we've kind of pivoted to uh, uh, social gaming because I still want to do something that has to do with social. So uh, we uh, pivoted to social gaming, and then we grew that for about four and a half years, got to about 5 million users. And then, uh, thankfully, uh, we were bought by this company called Gree. They're a publicly traded company in Japan. And back then, they were doing maybe a billion or two in uh, two billion or two billion in yearly revenue. And then, uh, yeah, thankfully, uh, they didn't speak Japanese, but I spoke English. Uh, they spoke English, so which kind of ultimately worked out. So that's kind of how uh, I wrapped up my first journey as a startup founder. And I and I guess that also this gave you access to to really have visibility into what the full cycle of um, of building, scaling, financing, and exiting looks like. I mean, how was especially that exiting process like? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like it's a kind of a, a retrospect or in transparency, you know, as you kind of go through the startup journey, you as a founder get to do a lot of self reflection: what you're good at, what you're not good at, what really gives you that fulfillment and purpose versus what doesn't. 
And one thing that I really learned about myself deeply during that time was I really loved this concept of building the company, getting people together, marching towards a single mission and all that, and bringing the culture. All, all those things really gave me a lot of purpose. One thing that didn't really uh, sit well with me was what is the value you're creating for society? And as an entrepreneur, you can really create maybe two different values. One is like how to make life more fun, which would be the content business, like the gaming, the music, all that like content. And then second is how to make life more useful or easier, which is more of a tool. You're creating services that solve problems. And I kind of understood that my deepest desire was more in the latter of creating you know, usefulness and making life easier. And creating games wasn't really that. So um, uh, probably sometime, maybe three years in, I kind of thought to myself, okay, I do want to continue to build new companies, but probably if the company, uh, I want to create a value that ties to the, you know, uh, solving problems for people. So I always start to think about how do I exit or wrap up this current business? And uh, so start to think about strategic exit opportunities. And when I heard Greedy was expanding into Korea, we're like, okay, this is a perfect opportunity. So we started partnering with this company early on, thinking about the strategic goals to launch in Korea and then how we as a company can fit into their broader goals. So we kind of worked in the partnership for maybe six plus months. And ultimately, maybe a year into our relationship, we ended up evolving that into a strategic acquisition opportunity. So we sold the company for you know nearly ten million dollars, and you know today ten million dollar may not seem like a lot of money, but back then it was a pretty good exit for the investors made money, you know some of the early members also made money, so it was a it was a relatively good exit, and which really gave me the one the confidence, a perspective, and to go about and do the next business, but also gave me the financial stability to kind of you know, explore uh, this with a little bit more of a long term thinking. So that ultimately kind of worked out. And obviously, your next business, you know, your latest baby, Sendbird, but uh, it, it, it did not start as Sendbird. So tell us about, you know, what was that process like, you know, especially jumping from now, closing the gap with, uh, with, with your first company now, really shifting and jumping into now, you know, what has become Sendbird. I mean, what, what was that process like? Yeah. Um, so I feel like at this point, I'm a serial pivoter at this point. So with the second company, <laughs> we started as a, a company called Smile Family. And our first product was a called Smile Mom, basically creating a local mom's community app where you can find other moms in your area with some marriage kids, buy and sell used baby products, set up play days, do things like that. And uh, again, just like you see the common themers, I continue to want to do something social, connecting people, making the conversation and building communities around that. And uh, um, we're trying to build this. So I started this company, second companies with the buddies from my first startup. So we've been working together for 12 plus years now. And then this time around, you know, our my technical co-founder didn't again want to build chat again because uh, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, users engaging with with each other on the comment section, and they were having conversations there. We're like, okay, ladies, this is not how you're supposed to use comments. And then we realized they really want a messaging feature. So um, I think it was around 2015 when like Mary Meeker uh, back then, I believe at Morgan Stanley, uh, came out with the Internet Trends report saying messaging app is taking over the world. There's WeChat, you know. Telegram, WhatsApp, all these apps are really taking over the entire app uh, ecosystem as the most frequently used um, application. So we saw that uh, market trend and wanted to add a messaging feature for our own application. So we were actually on the buyer side. Uh, we looked at all the open sources. We tested a bunch of them. Then uh, some, a lot of them didn't really work out for the mobile environment. So we switched over to like things like Firebase, built another product on top of it, and then realized you know none of them really was catered to the modern messaging experience that was like really uh, efficient on mobile devices. So we ended up building the entire chat stack ourselves, which became literally Sembert and Smile Mom gave birth 
quote unquote, December as a product. So it's still the same company, same cap table, same co-founders, but we ultimately uh, pivoted to um, December around 2015. That, that was the year we applied to Y Combinator at the end of 2015. And luckily we got in. So that's kind of how we naturally pivoted into December. And why Y Combinator? I mean, how, I mean, obviously 2015, you know, was uh, at that point, you know, like Dropbox and, and Airbnbs and all of these companies were already, you know, starting to, to, to be out there, to build, to be building really big stuff. And, and I think that Y Combinator at that point was already, you know, like a really, like even harder than Harvard to get into. But, but I guess how, how did you guys, you know, come across Y Combinator and why did you think it was a good idea for the business at that point? Yeah, um, we're constantly looking for opportunities to really go global. And um, although I spoke English, I never really worked globally or uh, having been to Silicon Valley other than as a tourist. So it was kind of hard for me to envision myself, you know, uh, soft landing into Silicon Valley without any network. Uh, and whatnot. And Y Combinator is a kind of a perfect, uh, almost the ecosystem where you can build a bunch of networks very efficiently. Also test out your business very quickly with your, your alumni group or even within, within your batch and also get really radically candid feedback from the partners on what to do, what not to do, and also have a platform to raise money. So it was like a really perfect storm if you can get in. We actually applied to YC in our first product with Smile Mom. Uh, uh, we got to the interview and uh, I remember like, Paul Graham, like looking at Jessica and it's like, hey, would you ever use this product? And Jessica's like waving her head. I'm like, okay, we're failing here. Uh, but uh, what was interesting was when we switched over to December, this is a prob problem that we are solving for ourselves. We under we have solved this problem multiple times at our first gaming company. So by the time we applied for a second time to Y Combinator, it's a product that we were already using and we really knew, understood the problem inside and out. And I think there was a, you have to link, see through the lens of, how does the market and the product and the founder all get aligned? I think with the first Smile on product, all my co-founders were first guys. So we're not moms. And then uh, some of our members were singles. So the, the alignment wasn't really there. But with the second product, we were using the product for ourselves. We understood problems. So I think there was a better alignment. So we got on the second try. But on the second try, I actually didn't share with my co-founders because I didn't want to like, you know, apply and fail again, which was going to be very demoralizing. So I secretly applied. And uh, so I went to interview myself and thankfully we got in. So I remember getting the phone call that night. I was on a conference call with a bunch of buddies or team members from Korea. And I got this call from Michael Seibel. It's like, hey, welcome to YC. I got so excited. So I ran on the call. I'm just like, hey, can you just get everyone in the meeting room? And uh, I was kind of ap apologetic. It's like, hey, guys, uh, sorry that I didn't tell you about this before. Um, we kind of applied to YC and got in. I just remember everyone just like, you know, it's just like surprised with disbelief and everyone was super excited. So it was really good. But again, it's the, the ecosystem YC that provides for someone like me as an immigrant founder yeah. is a perfect landing spot to uh, someone, some place like Silicon Valley, especially before COVID. Yeah. So what ended up being the business model of Sendbird so that the people that are listening and watching, you know, really get it? Yeah. I mean, we power chat in other applications. If you chat on Reddit today or DoorDash with a delivery person, or if you go on a date on the hint, apps like Hinge, we power the user to user messaging. And we basically are in a cloud-based SaaS product where you, we basically charge by the number of monthly active users uh, that connects to our servers. So we don't charge for every user they have, but usually whoever connects to our server on a monthly basis, we charge for those. So it's a subscription-based service. Uh, um, so that's kind of a business model. And I think it's pretty well understood among B2B API or cloud-based services uh, uh -huh. uh, of our business model. And how much uh, capital have you guys raised to date? 
We have collectively raised over $220 million. We are Series C stage company. We have done seed, seed extension, then Series A, B, C, pretty much. You know, it, it's interesting here because it has not been a, a how would I say this, a, a walk in the park, you know, especially in 2014, you know, before you guys, you know, did YC, because in 2014, you actually literally ran out of money and you were financing the company out of your own pocket. So how, how was that? Yeah, uh, I remember, uh, um, you know, when I thought about it, when I first started the company, we raised a little bit of seed money and all that. And and, and then we had a specific set of time that we want to kind of flip the company and all that. But around 2014, we were trying to do something called Delaware Flip. Now, Delaware Flip uh, is, although it may sound simple because it's a known path, some of our investors in Korea were not familiar with the concept. So they actually voted against doing the dollar flip, which really slowed down the process. They had to pursue their LPs and all that. So it took us like literally half a year to do it, which should normally would take only a month or two. So during the time we ran out of money for probably close to three months. So I had to keep the company afloat uh, by funding through my own capital. Uh, so that was obviously very, very stressful, but I didn't really want to tell the team about it. Uh, later on, of course, team figured it out, uh, but ultimately it kind of worked out. But so that was personally quite a stressful time. And then, uh, I think even towards the end of 2015, that's when we actually ran out of seed financing again, uh, and but we got into YC. So I remember like sending this first email to Michael and Justin Kong, who were our group partners back then. It's like, hey, I'm really excited about you know joining YC. By the way, uh, there's two quick heads up. First, we're running out of money, and we have like two months of runway left or three months maybe. And then second was like we just got a cease and desist letter from this some other company. Uh, by the way, we didn't call ourselves Sender back then. We called ourselves Jiver which also coincided a little bit with a publicly traded company, some other company name similarly. So we got a cease and desist letter from this company. That was like our first like excited welcome mail to YC. <laughs> and I remember getting our partners uh, uh, responding back to me. It's like, oh, just fire everyone. It's like, no, we can't do that. We're a chat company. Of course, they didn't say it that you know, straightforward. But yeah. basically, their message is like, you got to like, you know, line up the team. But we couldn't do it because we need at least one person for iOS, one person for Android. We probably need someone on the server. So if you just count the number of people necessary for chat to work, you just simply could not afford to lose anyone at that point. Yeah. So I end, ended up raising during YC, which was we were not supposed to do back then. Now we are actually recommended in the recent batches. But so I actually had to raise money throughout the entire YC period to keep the company wow. afloat. So that was, and also that was you, a fun you, journey. Definitely a stressful year because also you had a a big, big argument on the co-founder side of things. So what happened there? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. So, so 2014 was certainly uh, uh, you're you know, hit with a perfect storm of running out of money. Co-founder breaks up and stuff like that. Uh, thankfully, we didn't break up, which is a good news. It was still all of our co four co-founders are here today at the company doing all of yeah. our respective works. Um, but a this is a here's an interesting story. It's all about expectation management. Uh, I recall seeing all of my you know, friends who all started their own companies get into this huge fight around year, maybe year and a half or two years in. A lot of founders uh, go through these founder breakups. And it was kind of interesting because these are all people with very different backgrounds, different years of experience. Why do people get into this fight around a similar period? Then I thought about my uh, just colleagues or friends who just went to have their normal jobs. Maybe three or four years into their jobs, they'd have this doubt about themselves or something like, oh, I'm a little bit bored. Maybe I want to go out and get an MBA or switch jobs and things like that. And then usually I think founders just hit that 
what I call entrepreneur puberty a little bit earlier because our lives are a little bit more dense than people who just have normal careers as employees. So I think people just all get super tired and stressed around that time. So I kind of remember when we first started the company, I remember telling our co-founders, here's a prophecy that I'm going to make. Maybe year, about a year and a half or two years into the company, we're going to have a big fight. And no matter what the reason, we're going to perfectly uh, rationalize ourselves that it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault to blame. We probably could have made XYZ decisions better, and we'll start blaming others with a uh, perfect logic. But let's just, when that happens, just realize that we're just simply tired and burned out. So let's not really you know, fixate on the actual content, but just know that we're just tired. And just when that moment hits, we should just take a step back, relax a little bit, make a take, maybe take a few days off and come back and together as a team. I was, you know, of course, I was guessing at that point. But what was interesting was it was almost like exactly maybe a year, year and a half into the company when we had this ridiculously big fight with, you know, just tiniest of the reason, almost like similar to how couples break up. It wasn't like, I don't even remember why we got into the fight. But I remember us cursing at each other. We were punching. We were screaming, breaking wine Pretty glasses. Cool. Oh we, made a, we made a huge scene at this wine, wine uh, uh, bar. And obviously, the owner was pissed about it, too. And I, I thought, like, this was do the doomsday, right? Nobody's going to show up at the office the next day. And, and I remember, like, uh, uh, just realizing. And the next day, something magical. People just showed up. Of course, we didn't, like, speak uh, at first. But people just sat there. We were silently working. I'm like, hey, guys, what's going on? And uh, we actually caught up later that week. It's like, hey, we just remember that this was that day. We just had to recognize that we were just all tired and then just accept the fact that we just have to work through this. And uh, that, I think, really brought our team together much stronger. And of course, there were other you know, challenges along the way many, many years down the road. But we will always be able to get back together, reconcile. And because we've gone through so many things together, now you know those small things will not you know, you know, tear us apart. So um, I'm pretty happy that it kind of worked out. But it's a good reminder that all founders go through some level of this deep level of stress and burnouts. And that's okay. That's normal. You just have to find a way and protocol to work through that. That's great. And and as we're thinking about adversity here, you know, and also we were alluding to the financing rounds, the Series A for you guys, you know, the first time that you took a stab at it, I mean, it was it, it didn't go as planned. So so what 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 happened there? What was the outcome? Yeah, I remember going out for our initial Series A at the beginning of 2017. Um, we we're a bit over a million dollars in AR. We we're trending in the right direction, pretty excited. I thought that was a big milestone. Once you get to a million, million, maybe a million and a half, that's where you raise a big Series A. And uh, I went out, spoke to about 30 investors. 29 said no, uh, with a lot of data where I was seeing all, all the things I shared. Uh, um, people all said no. And one gave us a pretty basically shitty term sheet that was like a flat round to our seed round. So I'm like, this is not a Series A. And so I ended up just feeling, remember, and this was pre-COVID, so I was driving up and down the Sandy Road to San Francisco, going back and forth, listening to this music from La La Land. So whenever that music comes on, I still remember, relive that memory, and tears come out of my eyes. Basically sitting in this car in between, trying to like practice my pitch, and every time you get a no, you just got to pick, your, pick yourself back up and get yeah. to the next meeting with you know, you know high confidence, right? But at the end of the day, when we got that 30th kind of, basically a rejection, I remember just sitting in the car, not knowing what to tell my team, right? It was a complete failure to our team because I told them, it's like, when we get to this milestone, we're going to go out and raise a successful Series A. It's a pretty painful process. And um, I really was most worried about the morale of the team. Thankfully, at that point, I was sending monthly investor updates and an investor, inside investor had a pretty good confidence. So I basically asked, hey, we're, we're, 
again, yet running out of money. But uh, because of the trajectory of our company, I think we'll do well. So, and then I just simply asked for like a, literally a million dollar extension and we were able to put together around within a week. So um, I think that's a part of the investor update is that people, you can build confidence and trust with the investors as long as you have a good cadence about that. But the second time around, so actually I was starting to doubt myself, like, hey, is this some form of racism that I'm being a big part of that I cannot like cross? Or is it because I did go to Harvard or Stanford? You know, I went out of pretty college in, in Korea, but none of that mattered here. Nobody knew, right? So um, so is it, am I like having this like glass ceiling moment? So I started to have a lot of self-doubts. But at, at the um, end of the summer, I had no choice but to raise because we're going to run out of money if I don't do it, right? So I remember just re-looking at the deck, completely re- redoing my pitch. And second time around, we started getting like return sheets in the second weekend. Uh, and obviously there was a lot of things that we changed, but um. That was the moment I'm like, I keep telling myself uh, that I think it was a quote from uh, first I heard from Mark Andreessen. It's like, be so good that nobody can ignore you. Just keep executing, creating business value, have good customers and good things will happen to you. And I think that's ultimately what Silicon Valley is about is if you execute well, have a good business, people will invest in you regardless of your background. And um, that was a really good turning point for me and the, and the company. And obviously, the Series B a little bit different, you know, when Tiger Global came in knocking. So how, how was that? Yeah, so the second time Series A went well. And uh, by the time we did Series B, it was also a pretty quick round. I think we had a few term sheets by the second, third weekend. So um, it was a relatively good round. Um, this time around, obviously, our stories were simpler, clearer, you know, the traction was there. So Iconic initially led our Series B along with our uh, existing investors doing Parada and whatnot. And then as soon as we announced our initial $52 million Series B, it was about weekend. And probably people in the later stage know this. When you announce your like growth stage round, all the hedge funds, everyone come out of the woodworks introducing themselves here. Hey, we're XYZ Bank, we're private equity, blah, blah, blah. So everyone kind of come knocking on your door uh, just to start building a relationship. And, and I remember getting this email from Tiger Global, a numerous series of email. I'm like, wow, this guy's like really tenacious. And then... and one of the emails like, hey, we're based out of New York, but I'm actually in this uh, San Francisco. Love to just stop by and say hello. I'm like, okay, that's great. So uh, we had a slightly like 45-minute meeting. And then our guy, John Curtis, thankfully, he visited our office. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, he was obviously, the moment he sat down, he started like bombarding me with these questions about metrics and whatnot. So I'm like, okay, so back then, thankfully, I just you know cl- closed our Series B. So I knew all the metrics in my head. So... I was answering all these questions and about 10 minutes in, he was like, hey, do you have room to take an extra 40 million? I'm like, no, I just met you. My mom told me to not take money from strangers. Um, so uh, I thought it was uh, his way of just aggressively you know, building a relationship. And, and then you know, we had a you know, good, good talk for 45 minutes and, and he, he went to take his flight. And the next day, he sent me another follow-up email saying, well, have you thought about it? I clearly have not because I thought, well, I thought he was half joking. He was just trying to test me or not. So I'm like, my uh, initial goal was to kind of say polite no, because we just raised around. We don't want to overdilute ourselves. And I'm sure Iconic would not be, you know, super comfortable with that because they also have deep pockets and I kind of probably want to do some follow rounds. Yeah. So initially I tried to say no. I said, hey, instead of 40, I like a 50 and increase the valuation to X, no forces, no extra due diligence. And so it was my polite way of saying no. Right. Probably like 40 minutes later, he said, came back and say, let's do it. I'm like, holy, God, wow. holy cow, this guy's serious. So I, I'm like, hey, I just met you. I barely remember what you look like. I'm not going to believe you until you send me a term sheet. 
And then uh, he sent me a term sheet right away. I'm like, you, you oh said my God, that. this is really happening? You, yeah, you said I mean, that? this is really happening? <laughs> so I'm like, That's I still amazing. don't believe you. Can you sign me a signed term sheet from your end? So at least I can talk to the board about it. And that was like, like my first vacation in, I don't know, five, five, 10 years. So I was just on my way to Hawaii. And I landed in Hawaii, opened up my email, and there was a signed term sheet. So I'm like, now I really have to talk to the board. It's my fiduciary duty to do so. I remember landing in Hawaii, unpacking my stuff at the hotel, and just immediately pinging our investors like, hey, hey guys, uh, hey folks, have you heard of this company called Tiger Global? And back then, Tiger Global wasn't as active as today, right? They just started getting to the speed of yeah. the SaaS. So I started calling to board members, and we had this emergency board meeting. It's like, hey, I actually have a term sheet in my hand. What do we do? So of course, we had some back and forth, but back then the deal was too clean to not do it. So we ended up taking the extra 50 million from Tiger Global, which kind of expanded our Series B from 52 to $102 million in Series B, That's which incredible. was a you know, good buffer. In hindsight, good decision with the COVID. We had a really good buffer to you know, power and power to grow through the COVID without extra financing. Yeah, no kidding. So, so John, I guess hey, here in terms, imagine of, of vision as, as, as we're looking ahead here for, for Sandbeard. Ima- imagine that you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Sandbird is fully realized. What does that world look like? Wow, that's a, that's a fun exercise. So there are roughly 5 billion people on this planet Earth who use messaging on a monthly basis. These are not just consumer messaging, but any app that has a messaging capabilities, again, whether it be food delivery, gaming, dating, doctors talking patients, all those things. So on average, about 5 billion, out of 5 billion people, on average, people use about four to five apps every month who has missing capability. If all of our vision has been realized, we'll be powering 5 billion people's conversation every day. And, and plus uh, times four to five. So basically, from our view, that's a 25 billion people's uh, conversation on a monthly basis, which is phenomenal. And then we'll be not only part in chat, but also voice and video. But we're trying to build uh, uh, or march towards this vision of building out a truly a user engagement platform where we are having all the conversation that happens on Sember within the application, as well as some other omni channels. All of that conversation uh, flows through Sember. And we can track all the um, business analytics related to it, also run sentiment and uh, sentiment analysis to it, automated moderation to keep the conversation as you know, clean and high quality as possible, because there are a lot of spammers and, and boss out there. So really empower, empowering all those rich conversation that happens in real time or asynchronously on pretty much all the significant uh, business or consumer applications globally. And that plugs in nicely with you know existing infrastructure like Salesforce, Genesis, whatever those things are. So will be the, um, I guess, the the household name for all things communications over IP. I think that will be a great place to be. Yeah, I guess that would be the first step of the vision. <laughs> I love it. So imagine I, I put you in a time machine now, John, and I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time where you were getting, you know, your degree, the, your computer science degree, and then thinking about a world where you could build a company. If you could go back in time and give that younger John one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Oh, boy. Uh, one, storytelling is very important. Two, uh, well, storytelling, well, it's important. Two is uh, expectation management. I had no idea how to manage expectation back then because I always am very, very positive. I'm optimistic. I'm like, anything can happen. I remember remember seeing my first business projection where uh, raising a half a million dollars will get us to conquer the world, which now in hindsight doesn't really make sense. Um, but 
so really matching the expectation of all the stakeholders, whether it be your customers, your employees, your co-founders, the investors. I think I did my I did a horrible job when I was running my first company. Uh, so really learning about the expectation management. And then third is like really understanding difference in people's personalities. Because back then I was trying to force my way of doing and my worldview onto other people. I thought there was a one clear way to being a great entrepreneur and great employee. So I tried to like force my basic mode of operation, forcing installation of my OS to other people. Realize, you know, it's, that's not how people work. You have to understand and see from where they are and really understand their worldview to align. And then uh, that's how kind of you can rally people towards a similar mission. It's not about trying to force them into your worldview, but it's really you know, meeting them where they are. I think those things, I, I think I probably spent all of my 20s and maybe early half of my 30s understanding human beings. And, and I still am a, a student in that capacity. But I think those will be a critical lesson to share. And the lastly, just have belief in yourself. Things will work out as long as you work hard, have sincere desire to do good in the world. The world will tend to help you over a long period of time. So you know, just keep going and um, don't give up. That's it. And John, one book that you wish you would have read sooner? Ah, too many books, but I certainly would recommend anything to do with what I call, the, uh, not what I call, but there's a, a field called complexity science. So emergent phenomena, you know, understanding the network science, all that, I think that really helped me understand or broaden my perspective of how the world works, how human brains work, how societies work, how organizations work, the super organisms work. And that really bring, helped me bring together all this, this different parts of the world and different parts of business into this uh, framework that I can all understand and really kind of uh, uh, iterate on. So I would certainly recommend consuming all those books. If I had read those books in my teens, I think I could, probably could have made a lot more scalable impact early on. Nice. So John, for the people that are uh, listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, just holler, drop me a note, an email. Sometimes if I'm swamped, it may take some time, but I try not to forget. And so, yeah, just hit me up at johnassember.com. Amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.